Bibles now, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. And it's our privilege to turn once again to Matthew's Gospel today. Uh, If you've been attending Berean for any amount of time, you know that on Sunday mornings we have dedicated these services to studying the life of Christ as it's revealed to us in the Gospel of Matthew. And I've chosen to stay with this study, and we don't really wander off into a lot of other things. Uh, We're going to stick right here in the Gospel of Matthew, except for special occasions like when we do Easter and Mother's Day, then we won't be preaching from Matthew at those times. But we're staying right here because I think it is essential to the heart and the soul of every person that you understand who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is more than most, the, the most important person that ever lived. In the Gospel of John, John begins with a statement that says that Jesus is God, and then in the fourth verse of the first chapter, he says, "...in him was life, and life was the light of men." And to all of us that are wrapped up in our lives and what we're doing and the comfort and enjoyment of the things that we like to do and the happiness that we think that we have, we need to understand that without Jesus Christ, we are nothing but living protoplasm. We don't have life like the Bible describes it. But Jesus can give us life. One day the physical body is going to wear out. Death is coming to all This life is not all there is, and death is not all there is, because God has created the soul to live throughout eternity. And sadly, for those who don't know Christ as Savior, this eternal existence is apart from God, separated from God. And this is why we get together and we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we don't want anyone to die and be separated from God forever. But the good news is that Jesus came to give life, and his life and his ministry was all about bringing salvation. But it wasn't salvation only for just those who lived in the time that he was here on this earth. It's not just salvation for people that lived 2,000 years ago, but the life and death of Jesus Christ is good for all people in all time. And so... While Jesus was here, he gave that information to everyone that he met. He was the personal chief proponent of that message. But we've noticed that in his life, and this is a reasonable thing to consider, that one man could not do it alone. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days in a year, that is not enough to win the entire world to the gospel of Christ. Physically, that's impossible, and so he needed help. He was going to the cross to die for sin. And if the world is going to be reached, it has to be reached by those that he gave the responsibility of giving the message to other people. And so someone has to carry on the ministry of Jesus. And thus we come to chapter 10, and this is a change in his ministry. Up to this point, Jesus has been doing it alone But the change is that he is going to enlist others in the ministry. And we see this beginning with verse number 1 in chapter 10. I want you to stand with me just one more time as we uh, read from God's Word. Matthew chapter 10, verse number 1. And when he had called unto him the twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, 
Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to be here today. Bless the message today. Speak to our hearts through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning I'd like for us to think about this new dynamic of Jesus' ministry. If you go back to the end of chapter 9, in verse number 37, Jesus said to the disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. And there you find the reason for the change of the ministry. The harvest is vast. The world is full of people. And there are very few to help in the harvest. Now, I think we need to review that information for just a moment. This uh, scripture follows what the, the compassion that Jesus had over the people that thronged him. He was moved with compassion upon them because he saw how the religious leaders had devastated them. The people were, were poor sheep, like poor sheep that were beaten down and they had no shepherds that cared for their souls. And if people are going to be led into eternal life, it wouldn't be these shepherds that they depended on. They couldn't lead them there. They were helpless with those shepherds. They were in terrible peril with those shepherds. They were lost and they were going to die in hopelessness and helplessness without someone to lead them to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And their religious leaders were much like what we see in churches in our country today. They're churches with no shepherds or with shepherds that are only interested in fleecing the sheep. Get as much out of the sheep as you possibly can. Never tell them the truth of the condition of their souls. Never tell them that they're doomed to hell. Don't tell them that unless they repent and turn to Jesus Christ, there is no hope for their souls. That's why Jesus had compassion on these people. They were doomed unless there was someone who could lead them to eternal life. Now, you'll also notice that he said the harvest truly is plenteous. What does he mean by the harvest? And I know that these verses are often used as soul-winning verses, and the harvest is referred to as the person that you would win to Christ. But Jesus actually explains the harvest in chapter 13, verse 39. And there he tells us that the harvest is the end of the world. And he said that the reapers are the angels. In other words, Jesus says that judgment is coming upon the world in the end. And God is going to gather his people out of the world. And those that are left without Christ will suffer God's wrath. And so the sins of the world are filled up, they're ripe. And God is going to reap the harvest. And if people are going to be saved, there has to be someone to warn them about the judgment that's coming. Help is needed to turn their souls from everlasting destruction. And so we see in this section, beginning with chapter 10, that Jesus is going to fill that need. He told the disciples to pray for help in the harvest. And then here in chapter 10, he shows them that they are the ones that he intends to help. Now, today we're going to see how Jesus turned these men into helpers. And they're quite an interesting collection of people. 
Uh, we're going to examine them a little bit later personally and see what they were like. But Jesus took these men and he changed them into helpers for the harvest. Now, how did he do that? Well, first of all, Jesus put them through a course of discipleship. He gave them a discipleship course and showed them how that they could lead others. Now, helpers, of course, are needed, but it's not possible for just anybody to help. You can't walk up to somebody and say, you know what you need to do? You need to get busy getting people to come into the kingdom of God. You just can't do that with anybody because the people that you talk to are the ones that are actually in the harvest. You can't tell them to go out and help in the harvest. They're part of the ones that are going to be reaped in the judgment at the end of the world. So they are the sinners that need to be saved. They're sheep, they're lost, they're wandering without a shepherd to guide them. And so the first task that we have is to get people to understand that they are lost without Christ. And most people don't know that, or they won't admit it. If they're not religious, then they really don't care about it. It doesn't make any difference to them. And sometimes when they are religious, they are content with this. My religion is okay. I'm fine just the way that I am. Leave me alone, and I'll do what I'm going to do. And each of these men that Jesus called was in that same condition. They were once wandering sheep. They were very religious men, but they had no shepherds. And Jesus came to call them out and to make them fit to do his work. So how did he do that? How did he start out doing that? Well, first there had to be their conversion to salvation. That's always first. They have to be converted to Christ. You know, there are many times that people come to my office and they say, I want to join your church. And I, I want to be baptized. I, I want to be a part of what you're doing here. And the first question that I always ask people is, do you know that you're saved? Do you know that you, if you're on your way to heaven? And if they can't answer that question correctly, then I want to tell them that they are actually sinners on their way to hell. And I want to know, are you going to repent of your sins? Will you trust Christ? conversion from being lost and on the way to hell and being saved and on the way to heaven, that's the first part of a discipleship course. Nobody is ever going to do God's work and is ever going to do God's way, go God's way, unless they have first been converted. And this is what we see with these men. They don't just show up here in, in Matthew chapter 10. These are men that have been converted I want to show you something in John chapter 1, verse number 35. The scripture says, again, the next day after John stood, and that's talking about John the Baptist, again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard them speak, and they followed Jesus. There you have the conversion of two of Jesus' disciples, James and John. They had been disciples of John the Baptist, but then they became followers of Jesus. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, there is the Lamb of God. And when they understood that, they began to follow Jesus. Following that comes the conversion of Andrew and Peter. They were saved. They were saved men at that point, but they had not yet become a part of the outreach program that Jesus was going to implement. They were fishermen. And they followed Jesus in the sense that they had been converted. But later we find them going back to their fishing. 
And then in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus saw these very same four men again, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and they were fishing, and he told them then their job description was about to change because they would become fishers of men. So the conversion of the men, that's necessary. They have to realize Jesus is the Savior. They were lost in that religious system that they were in, so they had to abandon the hope that they had in that, the hope that they had that they could reach heaven by themselves, that they could do work to get to heaven. They had to abandon self-righteousness and come through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, next we see their calling to the ministry. In Matthew 4, there's calling for the disciples to ministry. Matthew was converted and called in chapter 9. And the others at some point were also converted, and they were called to ministry. And so here in the first verse of chapter 10, they are called disciples. They are disciples of Christ. And it's a word that simply means that they are learners. A disciple is someone who adheres to the teachings of another. So they're disciples, but we see them here in their training phase. Now, in their whole lives, they're going to be in the training phase. I've been a Christian for 50 years now, and I'm still in the training phase. Every, every time that I get the Bible out and I begin to study for messages to bring to you, I am still in the training phase. I have a lot to learn. But there is some point here where Jesus says, you have learned enough, you have been trained enough, that you can go out there and you can be a helper in the harvest. And so these men, they followed Christ, they were learners, they watched him, they observed what he did, they listened to his messages... And they kept increasing in their understanding of God's Word. And yet we still find them in the very late stages of Jesus' ministry not really understanding. And it wasn't until the resurrection that they finally got this thing. I mean, all along, they were telling Jesus, we understand, we understand what you're saying, we know what you're talking about, and they really didn't understand at all. Because when it came time for the cross, all of them forsook Jesus and fled. They didn't understand yet. Peter even tried to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. And Jesus had to say to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. And it was because they were still being trained. They didn't get it until he came out of the tomb and he appeared to them. But there came a point, as we see here in chapter 10, we're not at the end of Jesus' ministry yet, but they had been trained enough that Jesus says, You need to go out and you need to be a part of the harvest. You, You need to take some responsibility. So they are disciples in verse number 1, but in verse number 2, they're changed, and now they are called apostles. It's the first time that you'll see it in Scripture that these men are now called apostles. And it's a word that means to send out. They were sent out into the harvest. They are the helpers. And so now they're in the ministry. They've been following Jesus' heels and listening to him, but now they're ready to step up and do some ministry. Now, sure, they're going to make some mistakes, and we'll find out that they come back bruised and battered at times, but they were sent out to take some responsibility in the harvest. And folks, I would submit to you that some of you just want to keep on training. All you really want to do is just come and sit and listen to me, uh, hear me tell you things to do, but you really don't want to get any further than this. Now, I understand that we're not called as apostles as these men were. They're unique in all the history of the church. They were Holy Spirit-inspired. 
they had a, a special calling that God gave them forever. Their names are etched in the history of the church. Jesus said they're going to sit on 12 thrones judging Israel. Their names are going to be inscribed in the foundations of the new Jerusalem in the world to come. We're not called like they were in exactly the same way, but the principle remains for every child of God that we are also called to do ministry. There is a point that we've been trained enough, and what we have to do is step up and go out and stop sitting in the pew. We've got to be workers in the harvest because judgment's coming upon the world. Now that leads me to the next part of their discipleship course, and that's the commission to go. In chapter 9, they're told to pray. Pray for labors in the harvest. And in the beginning of chapter 10, they're still disciples. They're praying, and yet they come to understand that God wanted them to be the laborers. And Jesus helped them to understand that by calling them out and giving them the ability to cast out devils and also to heal people from their sicknesses. Uh, When they are apostles going out in chapter 10... They came back each time. They came back and Jesus was there. At some point, Jesus was not going to be personally there. Here, each time that they go out, they come back and Jesus is there to correct the mistakes. Like a, like a mother that pushes somebody, a mother bird that pushes the, 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 the young little bird out of the nest. Jesus was always there to swoop under them and carry them back up and to help them. But there was coming a point when Jesus was no longer going to be there to do that in that way. This came later when he gave them the Great Commission. He was ascending into heaven and he told them to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. Here in chapter 10, this is not the Great Commission. It is a commission, but it's a restricted one. Because in this phase, he tells them, go to Israel. Don't go to anyone else. Don't confront the Gentiles right now. But when Jesus left the world, he had them trained, and he had given them a commission to reach out to the entire world. And so the world became the field and not just Israel. And these are men that actually would change the world. The gospel would go from there, from them, and reach the entire world. And the reason that you and I are sitting in this room today, the reason that you are listening to a preacher of the gospel of Christ, the reason you have a Bible in your hands is because these men were faithful to the commission that God gave to reach the world for Jesus Christ. The reason you're here today is because there are some people who said, when the apostles were gone, we're going to take the same commission. We're going to do the same thing that the apostles did, and so they kept the gospel alive until it's come down to us today. Now we're faced with decreasing numbers of people that are committed to this. Now we're faced with Christian, a Christian population that's not really sold out to Christ. And we have to wonder, what's wrong with people today? What's wrong with God's people when there is no holiness, when there is no commitment? when there is no desire to reach anybody for Christ. And some of you, even if you tried, there wouldn't be enough holiness in your life that you would actually be a credible witness for Jesus. Your lives are a mess with foul language and impure habits. And how, do you, how, how would I know that? Well, it's because we live in a generation that likes to parade every waking moment on Facebook. Today's generation likes to tweet out every little movement that they make in their lives. 
And so you see it there. People have opened themselves up for every little sordid detail that they're doing. And many of them are not even ashamed enough about it to keep it a secret. And that is a bizarre thing today. It is, it's open defiance against God. Who's going to help in the harvest? And I'm afraid that there may be people in the church who have never actually reached letter A on your listening sheet. They haven't actually been converted to the cause of Christ, to the gospel of Christ. So how are you going to convert anybody else? I had a person that told me, in effect, I may not go to church, and I may live like the devil every day, and I might curse like a sailor, but my father knows who I am. And I said, yes, indeed, your father knows who you are. Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. He knows exactly who you are. You're not a part of his outreach program. You're a part of the harvest that's going to be reaped at a later time. God's going to reap them in the judgment. So these disciples are converted. They're called to ministry. Now they're apostles, and now they are commissioned. So what are they supposed to do with this? Well, they are to collect all of these people into churches. They're to go out and reach people with the gospel and bring them into the church. The harvest is ready, it's plentiful. Go out and reach people with the gospel of Christ. Now, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 says, go and make disciples. But it doesn't stop there. It says, baptize them. It says, teach them to observe everything that Christ commands. So how do you do that, and where do you do that? Well, we have that command of baptism, and baptism is a rite, it's an ordinance that belongs to the church. The church is the one that has the authority to baptize. You see that in Acts chapter 2. There are 120 members of the church that met. Peter preached, and there were 3,000 people that got saved on the day of Pentecost. The Bible says they were baptized, and then they were added to the church. And then it says they continued in the disciples' doctrine, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And that's the proper order we have in Scripture. Be converted, be baptized, and become a member of the Lord's church. That's what Christ has commanded, and that's what the apostles practice. They went out, they reached people with the gospel of Christ, they brought them into church, and they taught them and trained them. And if we don't do the very same thing, we're never going to have help in the harvest at a later time. This thing's going to die out if we don't continually do that, bring people, make disciples, bring them into the church, baptize them, and teach them to follow Christ. That's the course that you have to take. Now, that moves me into the second part of the message, and this is the choice of the disciples. And there are some very special characteristics about the choice. God's work is always done in God's way, and God's work is done with the people that God chooses. And that's an extremely important part of this because God is doing the calling. God is going to call people out. He's the one who chooses, and so he's not going to say, Just go do it your way. Be baptized, don't be baptized. That doesn't matter. Join the church, don't go to join the church. That doesn't matter. It's up to you. You do the thing the way that you want to do it. No, no, no. God has a method. God has a way. There's a way that this is done, and you're not going to serve him unless you do it his way. So we notice some things about this choice. We notice first the sovereignty of the choice. What does that mean to be sovereign? Well, it means to have the supreme right. It means to have the power of authority to do things your way. It means that you don't have to ask for anybody's permission. I'm not going to make this a sermon today, get into election, predestination, and all that, but I'm going to tell you that God is sovereign in salvation. 
He doesn't have to ask you anything. He doesn't have to plead with you to choose him. If you choose him, the scripture says it's because he first chose you. And that's exactly what we find with the apostles. That's the exact way they were chosen. He said this, and Jesus said in John 15, 16, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go forth and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the very same disciples. The occasion of this is the last opportunity that he had to instruct them. This was right before Jesus went to the cross. This is the night in the upper room. In fact, the same night that the Lord's Supper was instituted. Now, you'll notice how they're chosen. Jesus said, follow me. This is what he said to the disciples, follow me. When Matthew was at the receipt of custom, he just stopped by Matthew's little booth there, taking his taxes, collecting those, and he said, follow me. Or did he say, would you like to come with me? You know, you know, please come with me, and I'd like to show you a few things. No, Jesus said, follow me. And the scripture says immediately that Matthew got up and he followed him. Do you remember the story of Paul on the way to uh, the road to Damascus? Then he was known as Saul. He was on his way to Damascus to find Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem to kill him, kill them. And Christ appeared to him, and the glory of God shone round about him. And God struck him down to the ground. And Jesus spoke to him and said, Saul, I sure would wish that you would choose me. I I sure wish that you'd stop killing my people. Could you possibly become a Christian? You know, that's the way that nine out of ten evangelicals think today. That 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 God in heaven is begging and pleading for somebody to choose him. That's not the way it is. God struck him down and he became the apostle Paul. And Paul didn't say, let me think about that for a little bit. No, the scripture says, he replied, Lord, what will you have me to do? That was God's choice. You leave Saul alone, he never becomes the apostle Paul. He's the one who heard Stephen's message and gladly held the coats of those who stoned Stephen. But when Christ called, the choice had been made and Saul became Paul. So when Jesus started looking for these 12 men, he sovereignly chose them. They had the bumps and the bruises along the way but they never were in final rejection of him. Even Judas Iscariot, who wasn't saved, had been called for a purpose. Peter talked about that in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and he said what was done there was done by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. So we have to get that into our heads, that God is sovereign. Now, everybody loves Romans 8.28. It's a great scripture. And you need to understand that the last part of that verse is just as true as the first part. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And the next part says, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Next, we see the submission in the choice. Christ is our great example of submission. He came into the world because of submission. He stepped down from his throne in glory and he voluntarily submitted himself to God the Father. Now, even though there is equality in the Godhead, even though the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal in authority and they're one in essence, Christ voluntarily submitted himself to the Father. And so what he did was he took on human flesh and he came into the world to die for sin. And his entire life was one lived in submission to his heavenly Father. 
He's the example of humility and submission. And do you know how these apostles were chosen? They were chosen after Christ submitted himself and prayed to his heavenly Father. In Luke 6, it says, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve whom he named apostles. So Jesus prayed for them. I want to remind you, we talked a little bit about this last week, that there was something to pray for. Something had to happen in these men's hearts and so that when Jesus called them, they would get up and they would follow him. Why do we pray for people to be saved? What's the point of that? If, it, if it's nothing but just a choice about following, then why do we need to pray? Well, you pray because you understand that God has to change the stony heart. God has to make the heart fertile to receive the gospel of Christ. Paul was the most persuasive the most powerful debater that Christianity was, has ever known. And when he went into the Jewish synagogues, which was always his method, go to a city, look for a Jewish synagogue, and there he would begin to proclaim the gospel of Christ. But as he did that, you'll see that in many, many of his missionary journeys that very, very few of the Jewish people were saved. They were often the ones that ran him out of town because he was preaching the gospel. But we see in Acts chapter 13 something different Gentiles believed. Gentiles received the message of Christ. In verse 48 of Acts 13, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So enough said about that. When you go, submit yourself to him. Submit yourself to God in prayer, because only God can change a sinner's heart. Thirdly, we see the schooling of the chosen. Now here is where we find hope for every person that's in this room. Take a look at this group and see what Jesus had to work with. There's no way that you start your religious movement with a bunch of guys like this. Not a one of them has ever been educated in, in theological schools. None of them been to seminary. Matthew was the most despicable of all of them right behind Judas. And in fact, to the Jews, they preferred Judas to Matthew, and that's because Matthew was a tax collector. He was a Roman collaborator. He was a cheat, an extortioner. He's a filthy tax collector. I call that starting behind the eight ball with your religious movement. So we have a tax collector in the group. We have these smelly fishermen. They're unlearned, ignorant. One of the guys, today we'd call him a terrorist. You say, why is that hopeful for you and me? Because you look at each one of us and you find out that we are all misfits for the kingdom of God. The best of us are in this sense like John the Baptist who said, I am not worthy to untie the shoes of Jesus Christ. Now that was a guy that was well respected by the people. They considered him to be a great prophet. But John the Baptist said, I'm nobody. I'm a zero. I'm nothing. He must increase and I must decrease. And when God looks at us, I'm sorry to tell each of you here today, but he sees this on your forehead. He sees that big L on your forehead. We're, we're all losers. So we're nothing. He's everything. So why should he choose you? What is there in you that God wants? What are the good qualities that make you so special? Well, you have to ask somebody other than me. Ask Joel Osteen or somebody like that, because... 
He'll tell you, you don't need to be saved. You just need to think better about yourself. You, you need to be a little bit more self-esteem. That's what you need. And you know, funny, not once did God ever say that in his word. In fact, the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write, to consider everybody better than you. He also said in Galatians 6, verse 3, for if a man thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But the point here is to take heart because Jesus is going to take something or take nothing and make something out of it. He's going to take this ragtag bunch of people and make them mighty witnesses, and they will be so great that the whole world will be reached through their witness. And you know something? Not one of them ever claimed that he was great. Not one of them ever talked about how gifted that they were, not when they'd been trained. There was a time when James and John came to Jesus, and they were feeling pretty good about themselves. And they say to, actually, they enlisted their mother to do this for them. And uh, they came to Jesus, and they said, you know, one of us wants to sit on your right hand when you come into your kingdom. And the other one says, I want to sit on your left hand when you come into your kingdom. And boy, folks, did they ever get some more training right then. Did they ever learn something right then? Because then they learned that a disciple must be as the teacher. And do you know what the teacher did? He bent down and he washed smelly feet. He became a servant. And he taught them that they need to be servants as well. You'll never find in the scripture where God promised wild financial success if you become a Christian. That's preached all over the place today. The Bible never says you're going to be successful financially if you become a Christian. But it will tell you that you must be a humble servant. James was killed by Herod for preaching the gospel. His brother John, the other one who said, I want to sit on the other hand when you come into kingdom, John was boiled in oil and sent to a rocky, barren island to rot there. But they'd been to Jesus' school, and they had been trained for the only mission that really mattered. They were help for the harvest. They were laborers in God's field, and those men, all of them, stayed laborers in God's field until they were called home to glory, many of them dying for the cause of Christ. I want to show you one other significant aspect of, their, of this choice, and that is the success of the choice. These men are a motley crew. Nobody's going to choose these men as spokesmen for anything, but God knew what he was doing. God could make something of them. They weren't chosen for failure. God didn't choose them and just leave them alone and let them fail. And Jesus never pulled his hair out and said, What am I doing? What, what a group that I've chosen. These people are driving me crazy. This is not going to work. And you know why he never said that? Because it was never about the men that he chose. It was always about him. And when are we going to learn that? That when we think it's all about us, we are doomed to failure every time because this is not about us. When we look for what we want... We're always going to fail. So we have to abandon that kind of thinking. That has to be thrown aside right up front when you begin to follow Christ. It's never about us. It's always about him. Salvation is not about you. It's always about God. It's about what God deserves. And God deserves somebody to glorify him. And so if you think that salvation is only about saving your neck, you have the wrong idea. Salvation is about the almighty God who deserves the glory from all creatures in heaven and earth. And so when Jesus chose them, it didn't matter who they were. It didn't matter. 
He was going to give them everything they needed for guaranteed success. And you know what happened? Let me just give you a couple of scriptures that show us. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts is a testament to the power and the preaching of the apostles. Thousands of people were saved on Pentecost. 5,000 men, including, not including the women and children, were saved in Acts chapter 4. And because of all that commotion that these men caused, they, they were having such success in converting people to Christ that they were summoned before the highest Jewish court in the land. They're summoned to the Sanhedrin. And there in that courtroom, they preach salvation in Christ. Now, we notice in verse number 12, Peter has just described how that Jesus was raised from the dead, how that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the cornerstone of God's kingdom. And he makes a very familiar statement in verse 12. He said, neither is there salvation in any other. The apostles are saying this to the Jewish Sanhedrin, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And in verse number 13, the Sanhedrin makes their assessment of what they've just heard, their assessment of what the apostles did. And the scripture says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Peter and John had eloquently eloquently defended the faith from the Scriptures, and it astounded these learned men that sat on the Jewish council. How could these ignorant men do this? And the answer to the question, they had been with Jesus. They were trained by Jesus. And that's the answer to the success. Now, one more Scripture, and we'll be through. You're still in Acts. Turn over to Acts chapter 17. This is 20 short years after Acts chapter 4. And Paul is preaching to the Gentiles. And I want to show you what happened after 12 men preached the gospel. And just part of one verse, in verse number 6. Paul was preaching in Thessalonica. The gospel was working mightily. And at the end of the sixth verse it says, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. These men that revolutionized the Roman Empire with the gospel, they said they're here to do it to us. That's the success of God's chosen men. In every corner of the Roman Empire, these men had been heard of. The gospel had spread everywhere like kudzu. The empire was aware of them, and they had turned the world upside down. And I want to tell you today that God is still calling us to turn the world upside down. And God has chosen this church in this location, in this community, to be a leader and a start for turning the world upside down. And so I want to ask you a question. Where are you when the church has outreach? What have you been doing in the past week to get people to come to Jesus Christ? And I might also ask, what sin is there in your life that you need to get rid of so that you can actually be a credible witness when you do go out? The harvest is plenteous, Jesus says. Judgment is coming. And the question is, who is going to work in God's field? We've been called to do it. We're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have been called to do it. There needs to be helpers in the harvest, and every one of us needs to be a helper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We recognize our...
failures. We recognize, Lord, that we haven't done all that we could do. We recognize that we haven't been the kind of witnesses and in many cases haven't lived like a witness of Jesus Christ should live. I ask you, Lord, to speak to someone's heart today for church members that you encourage them, speak to their hearts and show them they need to be helpers to bring people in to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, spread the word where they go. And then, Lord, we pray for anyone here today without you who doesn't know you as Savior. These people without salvation are in the harvest that will be reaped. Judgment is coming, and help us to warn people of that judgment. Speak to our hearts today, Lord. Bless us as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.